The Verso Podcast, the home of radical thinking. What he's in the end saying is the ideals of the French Revolution are actually realised more fully in, in the Caribbean than they are in France. We have to work out how they sit together and how we articulate them in terms of how we understand of the political circumstances that we're working within. That's why it's black jackets, because they actually realise those, those ambitions more, even though history forgets that. But also how we build our own oppositional struggles. Cyril Lionel Robert James, better known to history as CLR James, was born in 1901 in Trinidad and died in 1989 in London. His work spanned polemic and playwriting, fiction and history and critical theory, and it continues to have a seismic impact on discussions around class, culture, empire, capital, race and revolution. Just some of his works include Minty Alley, State Capitalism and World Revolution, Every Cook Can Govern, and his best-known book, The Black Jacobins, that put the Haitian Revolution squarely in the centre of the history of class struggle and Enlightenment idealism. C.L.R. James's writing wasn't a project of pie-in-the-sky armchair philosophising. He was actively organising throughout a lifespan that saw two world wars, the Russian Revolution, a successful liberation project across the colonised world, and the global reorganisation of capitalism in response. These histories unfolding around him shaped and sharpened questions about the nature of power and how the working class could come to govern itself. In this episode, I'm joined by Brett St. Louis and Aaron Kunnani to explore the life, the works and the legacy of this radical scholar. Brett St. Louis is a lecturer in sociology at Goldsmiths University of London. He's an editorial board member of the journals Ethnic and Racial Studies and New Formations, and he's the author of Rethinking Race, Politics and Poetics, C.L.R. James's Critique of Modernity. Aaron Kunnani is a writer and author of multiple titles, including The End of Tolerance, Racism in 21st Century Britain, The Muslims Are Coming, Islamophobia, Extremism and the Domestic War on Terror, and most recently, What is Anti-Racism and Why It Means Anti-Capitalism, published by Verso Books this year. Together, we talked about the history of Haiti, the relationship between race and class, and the future of internationalism. Hello, Aaron. Hello, Brett. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Eleanor. Thanks for having me. Hi, Eleanor. Thanks for having me as well. It's so wonderful to have the opportunity to talk to you both about the titan that is CLR James, an incredibly important and influential thinker of the 20th century and many ways of the 21st century as well. Um, maybe we could get into that. But um, first, I think it might be useful to just kind of situate the man that he was. He lived over this extraordinary time period. He's born into the height of the British imperial project in some senses, dies in 1989 around the fall of the Berlin Wall. That's an extraordinary time period in which many of the kind of questions that he's raising, certainly in Black Jacobins and a lot of his other work around the nature of liberatory struggle, the relationship between different places in uh, the global periphery, their relationship to the global centre, all of these are being not just thought about in academic circles, they're being lived, they're being practised in struggle. So I think it's probably worth us having a little chat first about 
how these kinds of struggles and intellectual environment uh, shapes him like as a person, as a thinker. I was wondering if we could go to you first, Brett. I mean, I think one of the things that always struck me as somewhat different about James was his trajectory, that he, you know, was just had all of these um, di- interests that we might think of as diverse or eclectic, right? You know, he starts off as a, as a, as a novelist. He, he's a playwright. He plays cricket. He enjoys cricket. But he's also, you know, develops a political consciousness. As a young man, he talks in Beyond the Boundary about how he joined the wrong cricket club, so to speak, the club of the kind of light-skinned middle class, and that that set back his his political development. So one of the things I think is most interesting, at least for me, about James, is how all of those, what we might be tempted to think of as separate or disparate interests, actually do cohere for him. Right, that there is a connection between, you know, the arts, sport, politics, certain kinds of struggles, anti-colonial struggles. He sees a link between between all of them, and I I think that's not just something to note in terms of him and his own individual sort of intellectual and political development, but something that I think is perhaps relevant to us today. Aaron, so what should we be thinking about, sort of first off, in terms of? Um, James's impact in the time that he has. We know that he has an extraordinary impact on, you know, the kind of thought that is happening today. He's cited a million times, referenced a million times, but um, he's also writing, you know, when Trotsky is alive, when uh, Padmore is alive, when Nkrumah is alive. He's very much literally in conversation with these very impactful historical figures. So, you know, how should we start thinking about those kinds of relationships? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's exactly how, how to get into, into James. And I, I think, you know, so, and, and just the list that you gave of, of some of the people that he's he's talking with also tells you, you know, that something of the internationalism of him, right? And, and because he spends time in, in, in the Caribbean, in the UK, in the United States, and in each of those places, you know, there is a... Uh, a kind of community of people that that are around him that he's working with politically right and and so you know i think in terms of the the kind of range of issues that he's that he's engaging on and thinking about you know i think for me that the kind of central central thrust of it is is the question of revolution right and i think you know the kind of conversations that he has with with trotsky the engagement with lenin is part of that but so is you know so is the work he's doing with George Padmore and then you know much later in his life you know the, the correspondence he has with people like Stokely Carmichael obviously his relationship with Nkrumah and so on right and you know what runs through all of this is is his constant question of how do we how do we bring about the revolutionary change that that we need in the world and um you know at the start of that of that journey of thinking about that question that he's on he's he's taking his cue you know to some extent from people like Lenin and Trotsky but he's also coming out of a situation in the Caribbean where you know he's very much coming out of that that insurrectionary tradition in the Caribbean you know that, that obviously he writes about in in the black jacobins but then runs through Garvey and so on and and i think it's that grounding in that history in the Caribbean that gives him this kind of capacity to to push the kind of marxism that he's that he's coming across in europe and and from russia and so on in a direction where it makes more sense for colonized peoples so let's talk about black jacobins i think it's 
arguable that it's his most influential text. And it's something that he wrote fairly early on in his uh, in his writing life. Writes this in uh, 1938. Europe is on the cusp of internecine uh, conflict that will draw the world into its second world war in you know his living memory and around him there's a lot of interactionary movements obviously the russian revolution has just happened and all these kinds of things are knocking around in the firmament so why haiti like why is the lessons of Haiti so kind of imminent for him, so important for him in thinking through these kinds of issues? Uh, should we go to Brett maybe? Yeah, I mean, that's such, such a big question, but a, a very rich question too, right? I mean, there are so many things here. One of the things that I want to say, at least in starting, and, um, you know, Aaron can maybe pick up on this or go off on a, you know, a sort of different tangent for himself, but one of the things that has, that's really struck me about the Black Jacobins is the way in which um, James begins the foreword to a later edition, um, the edition printed in 1980, where he says something like, um, you know, he was sick and tired reading, you know, histories. And he's talking about when he initially wrote it, right? He, he says something like, you know, he was sick and tired of, of, of reading histories with Africans presented as victims, right? And that one of his main reasons for conceiving of, for writing the Black Jacobins, was to correct that narrative, right? To con- to construct a counter narrative. So, in response to that question, you know, why Haiti? This is, um, you know, not only the first, you know, sort of recognized slave revolt um, in the Western world. This isn't not only what we might think of as the authentic birth of modern democracy. But it happens in Haiti, and it happens at the hands of slaves. So here we have, or sorry, people who have been enslaved, an important distinction, right? And he's making the point that, and he's writing this history of Africans as active agents. Now, they're not active agents in circumstances of their choosing or of their own making, and there's a very clear nod to Marx there, right? But there is this sense of Africans as radical, vital agents of history. And he says when he's initially writing the Black Jacobins, this is something that he was not seeing, that he was not reading in the histories written at that time. So for me, I think that's at least the starting point of answering that question. Why Haiti? Aaron, you're nodding enthusiastically. Do you want to come in on that? Yeah, yeah. No, I I mean... I agree with everything Brett said, and and I think you know for me I'm not a I'm not a, like an academic authority on on C.R. James, and I I come at James as someone who you know I, I kind of the book that I've just had come out is has a section on James because you know I was trying to think through some questions that James has some very compelling answers to right questions about the relationship between racism and capitalism questions about what kinds of collective action might be possible to overthrow those systems, right? And, and so that's how I come at James. And, you know, it seemed to me that, you know, kind of building on what Brett was saying, the, if you, you know, think about where, where he's at in, in this point in the mid-1930s when he's writing Black Jacobins, you know, there's, there's essentially this, if, if you're thinking about revolutionary change, it's two paradigms that are out there for you, right? There's, there's 1789 and there's 1917. Right, so the bourgeois revolutions of 1789 and the, the 
revolution by industrial workers or led by industrial workers of a socialist revolution of 1917, right? And what he's doing in Black Jacobins is saying, wait a minute, these aren't the only two paradigms of revolution, right? There's another one that actually happened before either of them, <laughs> right? Or at least, before, you know, before the, before 100, over 100 years before the 1917 revolution that everyone in his circle is holding up as the paradigm at that point, right? And, and that's important, you know, not just because it adds, adds another kind of example, but here's why it's so important at that moment, right? So in the context of the, the European left and, and the US left in which he's engaging at that time, there is a, you know, and, and it actually runs right through to the present day. We haven't got rid of these, these assumptions, right? There is an assumption that the only real way that you're going to have a, a, a socialist revolution is where you have industrial workers brought together into towns and cities and through the very process of them coming together and, and being turned into an industrial working class and being concentrated together in that way, that they acquire the self-consciousness to be able to lead a, a revolution, right? A modern revolution towards socialism, right? Now that story, you know, that story is right there in, uh, you know, in that phrase in the Communist Manifesto where it talks about capitalism's, you know, generating its own grave diggers, right? And, and, uh, and what what does that mean if you're if you're in Africa or if you're in the Caribbean, right? Or if you're in uh, you know in in the parts of the world that've been colonised everywhere else, right? It means that because as a result of colonialism, there has been no industrialization in your part of the world, right? So if that is your working assumption of what a revolution can only look like, you aren't going to have one, and you're going to have to wait for the revolutions in Europe to happen before then they can free you on. <laughs> you know, on behalf of you, right? You can't have any agency yourself, right? Or worse, you, you have to make the case that, in fact, colonialism is a positive force because it's going to lead to eventually the industrialization that makes it possible for us to have a working class in a country like India or Jamaica, and then we can have our socialist revolution, right? So either way, you're kind of just being carried along by the tides of Europe, right? You have no agency, right? And and so what Black Jacobins does is is says uh, set aside nineteen seventeen, set aside you know seventeen eighty nine because obviously the other the other part of this is is you know the debates that are happening in the aftermath of the revolution in Russia. You've got the debates that are happening about imperialism and colonialism and where where does that fit into the, the international communist movement? And you know the answer coming from Lenin is yes, there needs to be anti imperialism. There needs to be national liberation movements in in the places of the world that have been colonized but those are going to be bourgeois revolutions because there's no industrial working class so all we have there is a is a is a kind of possibility of of um, bourgeois leaders emerging and leading their countries to freedom and that's great we want to do that and, and but it's not going to be socialism right that's lenin's position james is is like well if we if we look at haiti right we have an example way before 1917 of enslaved peoples freeing themselves in ways that just wouldn't make sense to the stories that that are circulating you know amongst liberals and amongst the left in Europe right it just wouldn't fit into their existing paradigm so we need to we need to break all that story and it means breaking the story that you know because there is this tendency in the in the the way that orthodox marxism in particular at the time worked of saying you know, we go through stages in history, right? Like we, we go from feudalism to capitalism. That's what 1789 is about. And then hopefully we go from capitalism to socialism. And that's what 1917 is about. And we need to go through these different stages. And that's how history works. You know, Haiti doesn't do that, right? Haiti, Haiti goes straight from a, a plantation system to a black-led republic, right? And it's a, it's, a, it's a very different kind of picture. So I think for all those reasons, 
James is James is thinking that although he's telling this history of something that happened, you know, towards the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, what he's really doing is also engaging with the the question of where is revolution going to come from in the 1930s, in the in the subsequent decades, and you know as he's said himself, what he's thinking is, is can there be a revolution in Africa, right? And, and by saying, yes, there was one in, in Haiti back then, he's saying there's going to be revolutions in Africa, even though there isn't much of an industrial working class in Africa at the time, nevertheless, there's going to be revolutions. And there's every chance that these will be socialist revolutions as well, right? So think about the peasantry, think about categories outside of the conventional industrial wage worker as possible sources of revolution. Yeah, and it's, it's funny, really, as, as well, because in the way that sort of 1917 gets framed within this kind of very orthodox approach to historical materialism as sort of, okay, great, we have this urban proletariat, hooray, thank God, we can finally have our nice proper socialist revolution. A lot of people who were involved in that revolution as well were, of course, like peasants. And a lot of the work that CLR James is doing is, is thinking about how to organise between different people who have, you know, slightly different relationships towards the means of production, but who would nonetheless very much be able to be part of this like overall like class consciousness, this more expansive perhaps version of like what we understand the class to be. And I'm would love to hear a bit more about, I guess, how James's work starts shifting that story, particularly I'm taken by how um, how clear he is in, in his sort of very, very exhaustive scholarship about much in the way that, you know, the ruling classes do not get their wealth without the labour and the sweat and the bodies of the working classes. France doesn't exist without Haiti, the Pearl of the Antilles. It's worth more than all of Britain's 13 colonies combined, right? This is, he follows the money like a materialist, but not in the way that draws him towards conclusions that might be otherwise comfortable for other historical materialists. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that James does is to achieve a quite delicate balance, right? So I guess one of the points that you're making there or gesturing there is that how he's able to hold two thoughts at at, at the same time. And it seems to me that one of the things that he's doing within this work is, I think it's not just that the case of Haiti doesn't fit into either prior case, right? You know, 1789 or 1917, but that there's this sense that is somewhere in the Black Jacobins where he makes the point that, that the plantation society, the plantation economy is not backward, Right. He says this constantly. He says this is the most sophisticated form of production at that point in time. Right. So that's an absolutely crucial point to make. Right. That this, you know, so he may, he, he says something like, you know, those slaves and I say slaves on purpose now. Right. That those slaves in terms of how they're positioned within relations of production. Yes, they are enslaved people, but he, he, he refers to them as, you know, being inserted within that sophisticated mode of production and that therefore they're not like artisans. They're a sort of approximation of an early proletariat, right? So it's out of those conditions that they start to develop a class consciousness, a consciousness of themselves, but not only of themselves. And this is another way in which I think James is creating a really subtle balance. One of the things that has always struck me about 
the book. And I still don't have a solid answer for this. But why that title? Right? Why that title? It could have been the black radicals, the black revolutionaries, but they're Jacobins. Right? They are Jacobins, but they're black. And it seems to me that one of the things that he's doing is he's trying, whilst he's talking about this local revolutionary instance, right? He's trying to point out, I think, that this isn't a simple sort of self-contained local political conflagration. So parts in the book, he talks also about some of the kinds of, you know, commonalities and sympathies and support felt by their, you know, by the Haitians, European brothers in arms, so to speak, right? He talks about some of the Paris masses, for example, you know, starting to question, you know, where their sugar comes from, starting to think about drinks such as coffee. He might, he doesn't ask the question, but he might ask the question about Sheffield steel workers, for example. So I think that's another really important balance that he's developing here, that we are thinking about Haiti, we're thinking about the specific case of the Haitian Revolution, but historically and politically, it doesn't sit in that vacuum. So there we have, I think, a wonderful, practical, applied example of internationalism, not just in word, but indeed with a real strong political commitment to that. And perhaps that really strong and, dare I say, authentic commitment Maybe it does take um, someone born and growing up in a colony, developing an anti-colonial politics, to actually take on that internationalist sensibility seriously and fully. Let's keep talking about that framework of Jacobins, of Jacobinism, because there is this really kind of uh, like curious and ambivalent and complex relationship, both kind of you know, practically speaking in the history and uh, sort of theoretically speaking between the revolution that takes place in Haiti in 1791 and the French Revolution that kicks off a couple of years earlier. And of course, it's the French Revolution is cited as this is the kind of the outpouring of the apotheosis of the Enlightenment. And there are a lot of sort of very understandable left critiques that point out that not only do a lot of the sort of key figures of the Enlightenment fail on the race question, should I put it like that, in a very, very stark and deeply racist terms, but also the institutions that um, funded some of the Enlightenment were themselves profiting off the boons of slavery, of colonialism, of colonial plunder, this kind of thing. And so it would be easy to kind of put baby and bathwater together in these cases, but that's not what James is doing. He seems sort of very, um, uh, very curious as to about, you know, how we might understand the self-organization of the people of Haiti, Saint-Domingue at the time, as very much in the tradition of kind of humanism and enlightenment that I guess contemporary leftists might be a bit more skeptical about. I mean, in a word, yes. (laughs) (laughs) But I think, I mean, I've got the book here. I don't know if I can find the quote, but there's, I mean, I wrote on James, you know, many, many years ago and there's a sort of a passage in the Black Jacobins where he talks about that relationship between race and class, right? I'd like to find the exact um, page, but maybe I'll do that later. But he's talking about the relationship between them. And this is one of the things that I think James scholars perhaps argue over the most. What is he saying in that passage? It's the one where he says something like, you know, to ignore 
the race question in relation to imperialism, but it's it's the point about what's the balance, right? And I think what he's saying there is to say that, in a sense, there is no race question, right? That w- that we cannot think about race outside of certain historical and material circumstances, right? Because these are the circumstances within which race is produced, but not only within which race is produced, why race is produced, right? In order to justify certain kinds of appropriations of materials, but also of human bodies and their labor. But at the same time, his point, as I read him, his point is to say that at the same time, nevertheless, it is certain bodies that are appropriated in this way. It is certain bodies who have that experience of being transported across the middle passage, of being put to work, of being worked under the lash, of being made to stand sort of, you know, routine terroristic practices and brutality. And so in that sense, race, at least in the way in which it's lived by certain people, whether we might want to think about them at least partially as laborers, becomes significant. So again, if I also then think about someone like Eric Williams and, um, you know, one of the points he makes in Capitalism and Slavery about on free labor being diverse, I think that is correct. But one of the points I think James is making there is that there's an incredible difference between indentured labor, bonded labor, and enslaved labor, right? And one of the ways in which those categories and the significance between them comes into sharp relief is when we think about it in terms of racialization. So we don't have, in terms of what we might think of today as a form of race reductionism, but at the same time, I see James as working against a certain form of class or economic reductionism as well at the same time. So he's trying to to say, I think, in that passage, these are two incredibly important categories. These are two very important struggles, and we have to work out how they sit together and how we articulate them in terms of how we understand of the political circumstances that we're working within, but also how we build our own oppositional struggles in response. So let's think a little bit about how they sit together and about how we can articulate them, because when we kind of dive into James's scholarship on the racial composition of Haiti at the moment of revolution, or I should say throughout the moment of revolution, because it's also a, you know, a 12-year struggle as well. This isn't just one moment. It's like a very prolonged historical process in many ways. It's not necessarily something that we would recognise as a kind of... Uh, a standard structure of how uh, race is organised, say, within the UK in 2023, where we're currently recording. And I'm curious as to like how those insights can can help us flesh out this relationship between race and class. And I think another thing that strikes me here from Black Jacobins is just sort of how harrowing a reader is in many ways, in terms of it doesn't pull its punches on its it, documentation of not just how race is made in a kind of technical theoretical sense, but how race is made by the horrific things that are successively done to black people, to black bodies, and sort of indelible part of like his account of that relationship, it seems to me. Aaron? Yeah. 
one of the things that's so interesting about James is exactly is exactly that he's operating in this space between a kind of class reductionism and a race reductionism, right? And what is and so you know, one of the reasons to read him today is to to do so to figure out what would that look like, right? And and I think, you know, in that sense, you know, there's, there's the some of the passages where he describes the kind of social order in in the plantation society of San Dominique. And he's he uses the word social prestige, right? He talks about how, you know, the blacks hate the mulattoes, the mulattoes hate the blacks, the whites hate the mulattoes, and so on, you know, and all these different kind of categories. And but he talks about them as matters of social prestige, right? Which is a is an interesting phrase. It's not, it's because what he's really interested in is is not so much the you know the kind of individual prejudices that one particular person holds towards another particular person in this society that's there he understands that and and so on but he's interested in how does the the kind of overall structure of this system which is a system that is not just operating in Saint-Domingue but is you know embedded in this broader international economy right that runs through France and other places you know how does that structure work through race is his is his question and it's an, and he understands it as you know, a structure that is both economic and operating through these these other kinds of uh, processes of racialization, right? And that's where he's so interesting. And I think you know the the you know one of the telling things about his account is, you know, I mean, he he obviously captures the hatred, the racial hatred of the plantation owners in all kinds of ways, right? And the violence they they perpetuate. But for me, the the, the really interesting part of of his account of his structure is when he turns to the bourgeoisie in Paris, who've who've now come to political power after 1789, and he has this point where he says they held no color prejudice. Right? He doesn't think they're racist in the in the way we normally <laughs> understand that. Right? But he says they were sober businessmen. Right? And he goes on to explain, and therefore, because they were sober businessmen, they understood that the plantation economy was the bedrock of their class power, which depended right. on, you know, the, the the capital flowing in the ways that it did from Saint-Domingue, you know, to the broader economy in France. So it was entirely dependent on the the profits that are coming from the Caribbean, right, This in this way. And so because they had that, that material interest, it didn't matter whether individually what their attitudes were towards Africans. What mattered was that, that material interest, and that's what meant that they decided to, to, to keep those plantations going, right? And so, I mean, I think that's a really useful insight and, and it cuts into so much of how we think about race conventionally, right? Because it gets us away from thinking about, you know, the picture he's painting here is one that makes no sense if your way of thinking about race is, is in terms of things like unconscious biases and so on, right? Like that's not the level he's thinking about at all, right? He's thinking about material interests, right? At the same time, he's not, the passages, you know, the, 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 there's this kind of through line in the book, which is all about the to and fro, right between the caribbean and france right it's constantly going back and forth back and forth back and forth these are entangled processes both in terms of the kind of ways that at the top of this structure the you know there's there's shared interests and so on but also in terms of what are the moments when there might be some some coordination some coherence between the struggles of enslaved africans in the caribbean and the struggles of this newly emerging kind of proletariat political force that the that seventeen eighty nine has opened up, right, as a possibility. Even though it's a it's a bourgeois revolution, it's opened up the space for working working class people in France to start to act as well as a as a potential force in this in this moment. And so what are the what are the ways in which, you know, 
does that does that that working class that's that's taking to the streets in Paris see the you know what's its take on the slave question right what's its take and it, and it varies right and it and as, uh, there's there's at least some moments where the the workers in in Paris understand that you know that the the cause they're fighting for is also the, the cause of of abolition abolition right and so you know there's a there's a passage where James wonderfully brings out that moment of resonance between those those struggles on different sides of the Atlantic right but here's here's the thing that you know I think captures why why maybe he calls it black Jacobins because what he's in the end saying is is you know the ideals of the French Revolution are actually realized more fully in in the Caribbean than they are in France because in the end you know the 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 radical possibilities of of what's happening in Paris are are squashed and that and that that opening up of something more radical is defeated but not in not in Saint-Domingue right not in Haiti right and so i think that's that's why it's black jacobins because they actually realize those those ambitions more even though history forgets that right and i think it's sometimes worth just sort of reflecting on the weight of not only was it a successful revolution it was a successful revolution having to battle off you know at various stages three of the world's like premier imperial powers at what is arguably one of the height of their sort of military prestige extraordinary stuff and it, there, there is this thread going through a lot of CLR James's work because you know he's, he's writing over the course of decades I mean who among us could be sort of you know absolutely on the same track for for that period of time and he's exploring many many different areas of politics life and culture but one thing that seems to sort of unify it is this sort of deep fidelity to like what is potentially made possible by working people it's this idea of of um the folk that sometimes sits strangely with what also seems to be a kind of an attachment to to vanguardism at various points in his thought. Brett, can you help us sort of disentangle this a little bit? Yeah, that's a tricky one, isn't it? I mean, sometimes, you know, referred to as in a lot of his works, you know, we get versions, you know, in in Hegelian terms of that sort of great man of history, right? Right, right. Toussaint Louverture, the the great man that is sort of, you know, he's very much the main character of the revolution in some ways in this book. But at the same time, he's a product of a particular moment, right? He's a product of a particular culture. You know, James has that wonderful phrase that he uses in relation to to those Africans where he says they brought themselves, right? So this is kind of a totally a, a, at odds with the ideas of natal alienation, for example, right? Where these are people who are displaced, they find themselves in the quote-unquote new world and they're experiencing social death. James says their own prior experiences constitute a valuable resource. You know, he says, look, you know, people like Toussaint had been soldiers before they arrived in the Americas, right? So they have brought a certain kind of sensibility, skills, and so on. So there is this balance, yes, between a kind of vanguardism, between a kind of great man of history on the one hand, with also an attention, and he says this really clearly and really well, I think, in a much later piece he writes in relation to black studies, where he says, if we want to think usefully, profitably about black studies, we ought not necessarily to think about quote-unquote major figures but we might think about 
people at the everyday, people working at the local, people, you know, involved in everyday struggles, programs, and what they have contributed to the lives, not just in their communities, but more widely. So I think, again, for me, it comes back to this issue of a kind of dialectical balance for James, right? Between, on the one hand, that vanguardism, on the other hand, the situation that people find themselves within, and that situation in, in, in the broader sense. But just something that, you know, you were talking about earlier in relation to wider Black Jacobins, Aaron. Mm. As you were saying that, I was thinking, you know, back to that part towards the end where, and again, we're going back to individuals now, but it's it's Dessaline mm-hmm. that's at the helms at the end, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the point James makes that always, whenever I, you know, when I read Fanon, I think back to this point in James where, you know, he talks about the bloodletting at the end. Mm. And he wonders whether that does something in terms of creating a certain kind of Haitian, and I say Haitian specifically now, mm. a certain kind of Haitian political culture. And so there's the sense in which, you know, yes, that revolution is is realized, right? It's not mm. realized in Paris, it's realized in Saint-Domingue. Mm. But in a sense, at what cost? James is asking that question, I think. And I think that's mm. a really important question what, that we see posed. Absolutely towards the end of the book. Absolutely. And, and you know, that obviously um, we know that, you know, what happens afterwards is, is you know, what what James's friend in Krumah would lay, later call neocolonialism. So it's by no means an end point once, once the Republic of Haiti is created. But, I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think that um, actually needs to undermine any of the, the kind of deeper points that the, that the book makes, right? Like it's sufficient for them to have got to where they got to at the end of the revolution to enable James to successfully persuade us. I think that, that so much of our assumptions about, about how revolution works and, and about what's possible in different parts of the world can be, can be thrown out and, and we can start to tell new stories. Right. So yeah, I, I, I think you're absolutely right that, you know, that, um, there is a cost, of course, right? And there's a and and there's it's not a it's not a simple story of of you know um, victims finding their capacity to act and then heroically you know creating a better world in a, in a very simple way like that. That's not the story. It never is, of course, right? It never is because we're human beings. We're not superheroes. And so you know we we make history <laughs> as as the phrase goes, right? In circumstances of not not of our own choosing, which means we are not the people that you know we're not we're not. Um, gods we're humans right and so that's always the case you may not have a better sense of this than me brett but but like, it seemed to me that that james you know james is is a uh, you know he joins trotsky's parties in the 1930s and that's very important to him at that time and he and he um believes in the you know in the vanguardism principle that that those kind of trotsky's parties would have had at that time but by perhaps you know, the 1940s, he's moving away from that already, right? He's no longer convinced. And and his own arguments that he's been making, you know, within that tradition, you know, logically imply that he should no longer be convinced that you need to have this kind of organized force of professional revolutionaries to 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 kind of create a revolution, right? That's that's another part of, of Lenin's view of revolution that he's starting to move away from, right? And so I think, you know, the, the famous line that every cook can govern, right, that he yeah. likes is... is is where he ends up by the late forties, right? If not sooner. And and 
you know, part of that is about what he's discovered in, in terms of the Haitian revolution, right? Because he's, he's talking about the, the sort of folk culture, right? And the, and the relevance of how that provides a kind of a resource for the revolution and how it provides a kind of, you know, you don't need a, a group of professional revolutionaries to, to kind of inculcate some kind of insurrectionary culture in these people because they already have it, right? They already have it through their experiences of, of their social situation, their historical situation for, you know, for a long time, right? And so the role of, the role of culture there starts to look very different from what it would look like, you know, for someone like Lenin, right? And I think he does say, you know, much later that he, you know, were he to go back to rewrite Black Jacobins, which he's kind of always doing in his head throughout his life, isn't he? You know, he would kind of centre it less on, on Tucson, wouldn't he? Yeah, I'm taken by that kind of um, challenge as to how we wrangle that principle, which is, you know, very appealing for obvious reasons, that every cook can govern, right? That like the the working class does not need to be kind of educated into some sort of greater state of enlightenment in order to be sort of worthy of revolution or worthy of the utopia that might one day be coming their way. Um, but, you know, we already have the skills and capacities necessary. But on the other hand, it, the book also wrangles with, and I think his, his uh, later work also wrangles with the kind of thorny issues of, sort of where those cooks might be governing and, and with what in terms of the architecture of the state, because, you know, Toussaint Louverture um, and, you know, et al. come into power and find themselves running an economy that has been so uh, sort of fundamentally based on like a, a deeply violent and, and extractive agricultural process. And I feel like he, he sort of um, pins one of uh, Toussaint Lubitsch's key mistakes in, in trying to sort of think about like, okay, how do we resuscitate the same kind of agriculture? And therefore you would, for potentially inevitable reasons, make some of the same mistakes that previous plantation owners might have been making. There's this question of, of the state that's sort of kicking around uh, sometimes in the background, sometimes in the foreground. Brett? I mean, I think Aaron's exactly correct, right? If we think about our understanding of James, the, the political parties he joins in the 1930s, his involvement, you know, we see, and then we see a certain kind of shift that's supposed to take place in the 1940s, the work with the Johnson Forest tendency, you know, every cook can govern. And one of the key principles that he and colleagues are working on within the, the Johnson Forest tendency is the principle of, of spontaneity, right? So instead of having this vanguard leading the mass, that, you know, how can one have a spontaneously politically mobilized mass, right? How does, you know, how does that happen? And it's, there's almost a kind of... um paradox at work there you know how does one create or map or build spontaneity whilst it's still being spontaneity exactly right and this is a sort of question of political theory in a sense in the way i read it there's, there's the johnson forest tendency are, are and james are thinking about in the 1940s but it's as if the precursor to that is actually in the black jacobins right because you know tucson is not a vanguard is is it's just not a vanguardist leader. He just isn't. There's n I don't think there's any possible reading of him in of, of him in that way. The history may be written through him in that way at times, but I don't think James ever presents him in that sense. But what we have is through the conditions of their work, those enslaved peoples 
spontane spontaneously, right, moving towards their revolutionary position. So I think there's an important way then in which even though, you know, we can think about the Black Jacobins being written in that particular moment and also being being written through a certain kind of Leninist lens to an extent, what you actually see in some of the narrative, and some of it is largesse yet, but some of the narrative that James is, is developing is we are seeing a certain kind of, you know, class conscious spontaneity emerging that does, again, put that whole vanguardist or question that whole vanguardist principle. I think just on that, you know, when we talk about spontaneity, like just because of that word, it can it can conjure up this idea that it just something just comes out of nowhere, right? And 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 then of course, if that's how we see it, there's nothing we can do to to kind of inculcate it, right? We just have to sit back and wait for it, right? And so paradoxically, we're back at where we started with the sort of denial of agency, right? But but I think what James seems to me to be trying to get towards is an idea of how you know so so what seems like the spontaneous insurrection is actually the product of a longer history among a people right and the ways that those people have attempted various forms of rebellion over long periods of time learned certain lessons from that that aren't lessons that are kind of in books or whatever but in the folk culture of a people right in the stories it tells late at night when we're sort of with our families and so on right and so culture is really the word to describe where this knowledge resides right it's in culture and and it and it then enables when circumstances are right it enables all of that knowledge to then be expressed in an in an insurrectionary moment right and and so if you look at it that way then i think there are you know there are things that if you want to think about how do you engage with that politically and, and in, encourage that process, there are all kinds of things you can do, right? One of the things you can do is to actually try to, you know, facilitate the spaces within which a people collectively engage in this ongoing shared process of learning and political education, right? Which I think is something that James thinks about, you know, and, and what it also means, and I think this is where James is, you know, engaging with, the sort of white left of the United States um, in particular, you know, in the 1940s is it's only going to be counterproductive for, for you to come in as kind of self-appointed revolutionaries from outside a culture to come in and, and, and tell the people, you know, how they're going to um, have a revolution, right? They may well know better than you, right? And so it becomes an argument for why a kind of autonomy for the black struggle in the United States is necessary rather than just thinking that we can do the old slogan of, you know, black and white unite and fight. Right. You know, so it does have, it does have very practical political implications. I think that line of thinking. Talking of practical political implications, I think one of the key challenges of James's work is the way in which he thinks through the, the shape and implications of internationalism in its various forms. And I'm uh, thinking particularly of, of, Pan-Africanism, something that we we seem to be a little lax on in the contemporary UK left. I'm making sweeping generalizations. I'm sure many of you wonderful listeners are not at all slack on the question of internationalism. However, we don't necessarily have the big internationalist conferences anymore. And, you know, these kind of 
standardized institutions where we're kind of continually talking about discussing these kinds of things. And of course, he has these relationships with Nkrumah and Padmore, who are pan-Africanists, but also not sort of entirely if folded within like a Marxist tradition. They have their criticisms of Marxism. So um, yeah, that's a, a broad question, but I'm curious as to James's relationship with the sort of the question of that internationalist coordination. Well, I think it's it becomes quite central to his work, right? You know, these struggles can't be understood, can't be engaged in in isolation, right? They must connect. I don't know, though, whether, and we're in a completely, if we think about where we are now, and I'm not sure what what the question is in terms of are we thinking about that in this contemporary moment, because when we think about where we are now and in terms of the extraordinary connectivity of communications that we have access to now, right, that um, that didn't exist in in the middle of the 20th century, for example, it ought to be far easier, right? So maybe in, you know, at least in terms of the communicative infrastructure available to us, right, digital communications, it, it ought to be far easier. So maybe I guess the question for James, or if we think use James to think about that question in relation to the contemporary, is why aren't we making those connections as regularly, as strongly, as deeply as as we might? And I guess one of the one of the issues, and I think Aaron maybe you touched on this earlier in, in relation to those different forms of reductionism, right? In terms of perhaps how there's an increasing encouragement at times to think about political situations, movements in local contexts, right? And that part of this at least thinking about questions of race reductionism, questions of class reductionism. We can think about that in this country, say, in relation to Brexit, for example, in terms of how these questions get phrased in relation to quote-unquote communities, in relation to quote-unquote groups that are understood in kind of restricted, limited, identitarian terms, as opposed to people thinking about themselves more expansively as part of a wider politicized group. So maybe that's what James, or one of the things that James has to offer us now, right? To maybe think of ourselves in relation to a political consciousness that stretches beyond how we might understand ourselves in communitarian terms or in in sort of more narrow terms of identity in relation to culture, ethnicity, you know, class and so on. So maybe that's, maybe perhaps that's one of the lessons James has for us now. Aaron, I'd love to hear more about that question and also particularly, so what is his relationship to this question of, of, of Pan-Africanism? Because, you know, throughout his lifetime, so many Pan-African conferences, the question of Pan-Africanism is like looms very large. And of course, there are successful projects, of course, of liberation, of national liberation from the British Imperial Corps. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I think it's fascinating. I think the the possibility of a of a revolutionary transformation of Africa is is something that he's he's always thinking about right throughout his life, and I think he's it's a you know central project for him. And you know, I think the key thing is the way he thinks about it 
is is that it's it's always going to be about a relationship between what's happening in Africa and what's happening in in other parts of the world, right? And that's what's interesting. You know, again, it's that dialectical balance. So it is telling, isn't it, what Brett was just saying about how how we have we have these vast infrastructures of digital communication, and yet we seem to be in a worse place in terms of internationalism than than we were before the digital age. In fact, we'd probably be better off, you know in a pre-electronic age before before broadcasting let alone digital technologies and and i think you know part of that is because i mean i think part of the explanation is we you know we think that what internationalism might mean and what solidarity might mean is is you know us in britain just having a lot more understanding and knowledge and empathy with people in other parts of the world like that that would be the key to it right and therefore so the, uh, ability to access a lot more information about what what might be happening in other parts of the world is is going to be helpful to that end but i'm not sure that's i mean that's certainly not the picture you get if you read black jacobins right what does internationalism look like in black jacobins it looks like people in one part of the world with pretty much no information at all about what's happening in other part of the world because it you know it takes a very long time for shreds of information to reach across the Atlantic, right? So, but nevertheless, they're actually at, at times, they're doing a great job of working in an international way to take on a common enemy, which is that transatlantic French-speaking bourgeois class, right? So that tells me that, you know, what you get in James is, is an idea that, yes, you, you know, the more you can coordinate your struggles across different parts of the world, the better, right? But actually, you know, the French working class in Paris, like fighting for its cause against capitalism in its particular part of the world, perhaps with an awareness of what's happening in other parts of the world, but understanding that it's fighting there, right? And it's taking on the bourgeoisie there. At the same time, the enslaved people in, in San Domingue are taking on the planters over there. You know, that the actually, the, in sometimes the best form of solidarity for people in other parts of the world is for you to fight hardest where you are, right? So what would that look like today? Well, perhaps if you think about, we live in a world where the corporations that are destroying the whole planet also are, you know, often based in the city of London and employ people in an exploitative way in the UK while also destroying the environment in, other, in, in, in the global south, in different places, you know, in extractive industries and so on, displacement and so on. And so there is a basis there right for for you know if people in nigeria taking on shell for what it's doing to their country over there people in london taking on shell for what it's doing in britain we don't necessarily need to know all the details of what it's doing but we we can actually have a you know the stronger that we're able to take on shell in britain just by doing that enables people who are taking it on in another country to be able to more successfully um, take it on because we close down its leeway for maneuver overall, right? And so it seems like that's the that's the picture that that comes across to me from Black Jacobins, right? As he's going back and forth across the Atlantic, describing these different stories, is it's not it's not like a necessary for them to kind of really understand each other. It's necessary for them to just simply fight hard against a common enemy. Yeah, it's it's striking really that like, although there are these uh, obvious you know, commitments to. Um, ideals of universalism and humanism it's not sort of just about an internationalism of the heart right it's you know you should your struggles should be successful because you matter as much as I do even despite the fact that you happen to live thousands of miles away whatever but because there is a sort of key strategic question as well like 
Capitalism is not just something that happens within the bounds of, you know, in this case, the hexagon of sort of domestic France is something produced by the relationship between France and Haiti. So, you know, without a revolution in Haiti, the French Revolution was always going to be doomed because that's not (laughs) what was happening. That's not the nature of the beast that anyone was fighting against. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I think when you when you think about Nkrumah as well, you know, and the correspondence that James has with, with Nkrumah, you know, Nkrumah is also thinking about, you know, can there be ways that working class struggles in in Europe or in the United States can in any way assist what he's trying to do in Ghana, right? And and again, it's a matter of what is that particular historical context. It's not going to be some general formula for all of history here, right? What is the specific context in which you're trying to do these political projects? And and Nkrumah, part of what he's writing about is what is that that hasn't that is no longer possible for he believes, right? That kind of solidarity between a working class in in a country like Britain and a anti-colonial struggle in a in Ghana or a or a struggle after independence against neocolonialism, it's not going to be as possible as it would have been in the past because of uh, the kind, the kind of ways that working classes in the in the West have been kind of incorporated into into a certain kind of imperialist project, right? And so that that possibility of an alliance isn't isn't going to be there in the same way, right? And so you know, I think these things are always going to be a matter of of just looking at what is the particular way that these potential allies look at that particular time in terms of their their political to some extent their political consciousness but also just the kind of material circumstances of their of their situation Mm. and when we think about those connections one of the ways in which for me james is extremely prescient unfortunately extremely prescient is thinking through those connections of violence what we might now term the imperial boomerang what jumped out at me, it was always jumped out at me from Black Jacobins, is the fact that it's, it's written in 1938. And um, he's already talking about the links between the forms and the technologies of racialization taking place in Haiti, and what he terms uh, Hitlerism. And then later on, he goes on to say that there is no form of racial discrimination practiced by the Nazis against the Jews that is not practiced by the Europeans in Kenya against the Africans. So I'd love for you, Brett, to uh, talk us a little bit more about those connections as as he sees them? Well, I guess one of the things, at least for me, that we see in the Black Jacobins is how that plantation society is organized, you know, maintained and reproduced, and the, the centrality of violence and terror to it, right? Surveillance, the management of bodies, discipline. But again, this is not a form of kind of asinine, racially motivated hatred. This is a systemic form of state management, state power, in order to ensure and maximize production. Now, in that context, principally sugar, right? So I think that within the Black Jacobins is absolutely central. It's, it's, it's absolutely central. And what we see, therefore, in those revolting Africans is the way in which, or the ways in which they begin to challenge, right? And the sacrifices that, that they make politically, but the way in which they, they begin to challenge and subvert those forms of state violence and those those systemic forms of, of, of management that, 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 that they're subject to. 
I mean, if we're thinking again about, I'm not sure if we're thinking and trying to think again about what this tells us today, I'm not sure I have a, an easy answer to that, but I guess part of it is that point, and I guess this is what part of what you were saying, that again, when we think about a range of different historical forms of genocide, we can think about a range of forms of genocide in local contexts as individual circumstances. But I guess one of the points that we're seeing here from James is, in a sense, a genealogy of this, right? How certain kinds of techniques of management, of biopower, of, of, of discipline, surveillance, and so on, how they emerge within, again, what is not a backward social system. All right, come back to that point that this is a sophisticated form of economic production and of, of, of profiteering. So these forms of you know, bodily discipline, state management, begin in the colony and they are exported elsewhere. And that therefore, I kind of hesitate to use this word, but I do read James in this way. I think there's a certain kind of humanistic aspect to this, right? In other words, everyone should read this book. This is about Sandeming. It's about transplanted Africans. It's about Haiti. And it's about black people, the racialization of black people. And therefore, ergo, it's about black history. But it's also about history. And that history of what we think of as the West, there's no history of the West without that history of, of, of Sandeming, right? There's no history of the West, there's no industrial revolution without Sandeming. There is no, as Aaron has said earlier, there's no realization of an authentic democratic revolution without Haiti. So this is a history of all of those things, but it's also a history that we can think of in more, dare I say, universalist sense, that we can think of again, dare I say it, in a more sort of humanistic sense, in that this is a history for everyone, right? This is a history, not just for everyone, but everyone must read. So Aaron, in, in this sort of challenge for everyone to go and read Black Jacobins, which I agree with for the record. I guess I'm going to challenge you even further to sort of narrow down, okay, what especially do you want people to be taking away from the kind of toolkit that the book presents us with? You know, I think, so what, so the, the, I think it's the two things that we've talking, been talking about, right? Is, is, so one thing is how it provides a, a kind of model of how you might understand processes of race and class as, as entwined together and not reduce one to the other, right? In, in, a, in a particular historical moment. And that's, a, that's then a, a, a kind of model that you can use to, to talk about all kinds of things. And then, and then the other is that it demolishes this kind of um, particular view of history, you know, the kind of Plato to NATO view of history, right? That, that like <laughs> never heard of that before, <laughs> right? That you know, <laughs> the, the standard, the standard, it's still the standard story, I'm afraid, right? It, it, that prevails, right? Which is, which is that you know, these ideas of democracy that began with the ancient Greeks kind of get revived in in the Renaissance in Europe, and Europe then invents the modern world, and gradually that that 
paradigm of how to organize a society and what and, and a philosophy associated with it is then kind of absorbed and rolled out to all the rest of the world <laughs> and they're a little bit behind us on their way to where we are right and that's and that's the that's the story that that James just you know throws a, a massive hammer at and demolishes right and and for all the reasons that we've been saying and that's why I think you know way before um, people tried to do that through you know through kind of various forms of post-colonial studies and, and so on, which I don't, I mean, I think Black Jacobins remains the, 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 the most devastating attack on that view of history. And uh, with a devastating attack on the Plato to NATO view of history, uh, that's where we'll probably have to leave it, unfortunately. Brett, Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. We heard from Aaron Kudnani and Brett St. Louis about the real inheritors of the Enlightenment, about decolonization, the state, and about the huge and continuing impact of CLR James's work. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do give us a rating or a review. It really helps us out. And join us again next week where we'll be talking cryptocurrency, bored apes, Silicon Valley libertarianism, and the reinvention of money in the digital age with Rachel O'Dwyer and Edward Ongueso Jr. You've been listening to the Verso podcast from Verso Books. This episode was hosted by Eleanor Penny and produced by Planet B Productions. For more discussions with radical thinkers, head over to versobooks.com.